0: Interesting that invasive candidiasis is called that. I sometimes think we should be calling it evasive candidiasis because it can be so challenging to make the diagnosis. If you've been working in a hospital setting, you'll know that invasive candidiasis is something to think about in especially your long stay patients. This is Microbe Mail, and I'm your host, Vindana Chibabai. My guest today is Dr. Tari Papavarnavas. Tari, welcome to Microbe Mail. Please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, thanks very much, Vin, and thank you uh, for this um, opportunity to to reach out to people about, as you say, Canada being evasive, yeah, we do struggle with this organism, um, alas. So um, I'm an infectious disease specialist, I'm a physician trained, and I'm currently the lead in the infection prevention and control um, unit at Crudiscare Hospital. And yeah, do physician work, do infectious diseases. Um, So still do quite a lot of clinical work um, Mm. with all the IPC stuff that I still do. So yeah, lots of fun.
0: Wonderful. So Candida is nothing new to you. You see this in IPC all the time, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, I'd rather not see it. But um, yes, we do get excited (laughs) (laughs) when we see these bugs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Okay. So just a couple of reminders before we head into our discussion. Remember to sign up on the MicrobeMail website to receive email updates on episode releases. You can also subscribe to MicrobeMail on your podcast player of choice. Remember to follow us on social media for episode updates. And sometimes it's just a general chat about fun stuff in microbiology and infectious diseases. You'll find MicrobeMail on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Vinita, Ruan, and I are also on LinkedIn, so you can find us there as well. Help us spread the love of microbiology and infectious diseases by sharing this podcast amongst your network. We really are trying hard to reach further into Africa and other lower middle income countries in Asia and South America as well. So if you've got a friend, a colleague or students in those countries, please do go ahead and pass the micro male contagion onto them. And last, but most definitely not least, we'd love for you to pull out that five star rating for us on your favorite podcast player. Now. This isn't the first episode we have on fungal infections, so if when you're done listening to this episode and if you really enjoy the content, go ahead and follow up with another fun Microbe episode, which was called Would You Rather, the mycology version, which is a fun game of would you rather have candida or would you rather have aspergillus type of questions, and that is episode 38. So, Terry, are you ready to tackle the ever-evasive invasive candidiasis?
1: Yeah, let's let's go straight ahead. Yeah, sounds good.
0: Fantastic. So I think the first place for us to start would be to ask, what is invasive candidiasis and who gets it?
1: Yeah, so thanks, Vin. So essentially, it's a patient that develops a severe infection caused by one of the candida species Mm -hmm. um, in which there is visceral involvement with or without candidemia, and in most instances, we see it in a hospital setting. It's very uncommon to see it in uh, the community setting. However, we can chat a little bit about that later.
0: Okay. All right. Fantastic. So that's a nice, simple definition for everyone to understand. And then what are the common causes of invasive candidiasis?
1: So um, the most common one that we see at Kyrgyzka Hospital is uh, candida albicans and um, others that we do see is Candida cruzia, which is now changed to a rather difficult name. So I'm going to apologize to the microbiologists, (laughs) but um, it's called Pitchia kudria visae V. Um, And then the other one is Candida glabrata. We also see that quite often in our unit. Mm -hmm. And its name is also changed to Nacosomyces uh, glabrata. Um, Occasionally, we see Candida paraspillosis, Candida dubulensis, and then um, unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, I haven't seen very many cases of candida auris, but but um, they are lurking around. Um, and there was a recent article that um, was done in South Africa looking at um, public and private hospitals and looking at the epidemiology of the organisms we're seeing. And um, it was done in 2016 uh, to 2017. And and unfortunately, candida parapspilosis was... Um, at the top of the list, then Canada albicans and then Canada auris, and you know some of the private hospitals are seeing quite a lot of Canada auris coming through and and becoming their predominant Canada species in their units. And this is obviously with time, we'll be seeing this more and more often in our units.
0: Yeah. So talking from up here in Gauteng, Terry, we see a lot more non-albicans than we do albican species. So a lot of candida parapsilosis, especially in the neonatal units. And then, mm-hmm. as you say, a lot of uh, candida auris, unfortunately, as well. You said you're apologizing to the microbiologists, but we're not the ones who are making these names. It's the taxonomists that are doing all the name changing. So
1: ah, okay. <laughs> I will apologize to them.
0: <laughs> so I will confess to not actually being offended.
1: <laughs> okay, great. <laughs>
0: So then, so it's fantastic to know who these pathogens are. It's kind of who's the zoo of candida. But we want to also know about the patients themselves. So can you tell us a little bit about the risk factors for developing invasive candidiasis?
1: Yeah, thanks. So just a caveat, I'm an adult um, ID adult ID ID trained. So I'm not really going to chat too much about the pediatric risk factors. So I'm going to concentrate on on patients that are in the adult population. But obviously the things that you find in adult population can also be found in your uh, pediatric patients. So um, you can basically split it up into... Two broad categories: so your immunocompromised and your non-immune compromised. And in your immunocompromised patients, that would be patients such as hemopoietic stem cell transplants that have neutropenia, patients that have mucositis, patients with graft 1st host disease, patients that develop—sorry—that are on chemotherapy that then develop um, neutropenia later on, and then obviously our organ transplant patients would also fall in that category. From a non-immunocompromised perspective, it's generally those patients that are on broad spectrum antibiotics, patients that are on renal dialysis, cases where patients are have central venous catheters inserted, so as we would say CVPs, IV drug users, patients that are critically ill, patients on total parental nutrition TPN, uh, cases of GIT perforation or, or surgery, and it's mainly surgery of the GIT where it's 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 a factor. And then patients that are, have multifocal colonization with Canada's diabetics, patients with extended stay in ICU, pancreatitis, and patients with um with sepsis. That would be the list.
0: Yes, absolutely, and I think what you're saying is true about a lot of those factors also contributing to neonates as well. But let me just maybe. As a microbiologist, I see a lot of the candidas in the neonates, so I'll add on to that bit. So patients who have had a lengthy stay in in the neonatal ICU tend to be at higher risk. Central venous catheters apply to neonates as well. The broad-spectrum antibiotics also apply. It tends to occur in the low birth weight, very low birth weight and extremely low birth weight babies, more so than um, your full-term babies, and also um, abdominal pathology, particularly uh, necrotizing enterocolitis is quite a a high risk factor in the neonates. So I think we've covered pretty much everyone.
1: Mm, Yeah, thanks for adding the neonatal section.
0: Yeah, no worries. So then based on the above risk factors that we've just discussed, who are the patients then? That's a repetition, right?
1: Yeah, it kind of is. um, It is a repetition, but, you know, from anecdotal experience, what we see on the ground is it's those patients that are on broad spectrum antibiotics that are immunosuppressed. So, uh, as I said, our hemopoietic stem cell transplant patients, patients with central venous catheters, uh, total parental nutrition and and abdominal surgery. And um, I must say, most of the patients that we see um, fall in the category of having multiple abdominal surgeries. Uh, we're quite lucky at Krušovské Hospital. We have an intestinal failure unit, which offers a great service to our patients. And, and unfortunately, these are the type of patients that we we see um, these candidemias um, developing in. Yeah.
0: Okay. No, that's helpful to have to kind of have that background as well. So now we've identified the patient who's most likely to have invasive candidiasis, and we're suspecting that they've got invasive candidiasis. How do we make the actual
1: diagnosis yeah thanks Ben. I think this is one of the most challenging areas um, in trying to manage the patients because it's quite easy to to treat a patient but it's not so easy to actually make this diagnosis yes so you can essentially break it up into two broad categories the the culture positive methods and then the non-culture methods Mm -hmm. non-culture positive methods so if you take your culture culture method so looking at blood culture that that is the gold standard and people well guidelines suggest that we should take about 40 mils of blood in in blood culture bottles so that's essentially four blood culture bottles but Mm. you know that's a lot of blood to take from a patient very expensive and the new guidelines actually state that we should do two blood cultures per patient to also ensure that we don't pick up contaminants etc but you know the economic crisis that uh, we are running in at, at this point in time. I've been advising clinicians just to do one blood culture, uh, which is not which is against guideline, and it, it kills me to say that. But we also need to save money in some areas.
0: Yeah.
1: And aerobic blood culture bottles are are actually um, sufficient. You don't need to use the micro-lytic uh, bottles. Uh, the yield is no different, and no mm. difference. And, and, you know, everything's about sensitivity and specificity with these tests. And mm-hmm. from a blood culture point of view, the sensitivity is around 63 to 83%. But there's a, quite a big caveat to this. And it all depends on whether a patient has had prior antifungals at the time of the blood culture. Mm-hmm. It also depends on the type of candida species that's growing. For example, glabratus can take a bit longer than the, the albicans species. And, and furthermore, you may have a deep-seated collection with the with the candida species inside, but you don't always have a secondary candidemia. So, so therefore, your your sensitivity drops further when blood culture bottles on patients. Mm. Another method is to actually take culture from sterile sites. So, uh, we've got quite a good relationship with our uh, our surgical colleagues and interventional radiologists, and if. Patients have complicated intra-abdominal infections. There's an abscess sitting inside the abdomen. Abdomen's frozen. We we usually call our interventional teams and we kindly ask them to take aspirates for us or, or put in percutaneous drains. And, and that gives us a very good idea of what's actually growing. Is it bacterial? Is it fungal, et cetera? Mm. So those are the culture-based methods. The non-culture-based methods, there's a number of them. I'm going to run through them very broadly, and then I'll concentrate on one more than more than others. So, BDD glucan, I think most people are aware of. The others is a Candida albicans germ tube antibody, not readily available. PCR detection, T two magnetic resonance, a Candida test, and mannan and anti mannan combination um, antibodies antigen tests. Uh, not uh, we, as far as I know, we don't have those tests available in in states, and I doubt many of the private hospitals either so not something in south africa Mm. one thing we do have access to well not everyone is b2d glucan and this is really becoming quite an interesting topic Um, and when when reading it i had to enlighten myself about some new literature that's coming through and Mm. so b2d glucan was is is part of the the south war of the of the canada and this is one of the tests that we can do. And it's been used in an ICU setting as a good rule out test, especially in patients that have been in ICU for more than five days. It's got a very good negative predictive value. So if it's negative, it's very unlikely that the patient has got a fungal, a candidemia. Um, But, you know, it's based on low quality of evidence, unfortunately, and the the sensitivity is around 80% and the specificity order around 80%. But there are false positives to this. Mm -hmm. And, that can be related to patients that are on intravenous immunoglobulin, uh, albumin, patients with graphose host disease, patients um, on renal replacement where the cellulose membranes. Those can all cause your, your B2D glucan to be falsely positive. And then also another thing to take into account is that in immunosuppressed patients, actually your sensitivity drops. So again, something to, to remember. And, you know, people advise doing two beta-D glucan tests on two separate days uh, consecutively. And if the level is above 80, then to consider uh, giving um, uh, antifungal therapy to these patients. And what's really interesting, there was a a, a trial um, called the CANDY-SEP, which Mm -hmm. was done in 2022. And um, the trial... Basically, it was a randomized controlled uh, trial based, uh, which separated two patient groups. The one patient group was patients who who had two B2D glucans on consecutive days. And if they were positive at more than 80, they would start antifungals. That was the one group. And the second group was a control group where they would only start antifungal treatments based on if they cultured the candida. Now, what they wanted to see is, does a B2D glucan decrease the time to antifungals and therefore reduce the mortality in Mm -hmm. patients with sepsis in ICU. Now this is the results, which was quite interesting. So it makes sense. The median time to treatment was 1.1 days in the B2D glucan arm. And in the control arm, it was 4.4 days, i.e. they waited to culture uh, the candida and then they started treatment. But what was even more interesting is that the mortality in the B2D glucan was 33% Whereas in the control group at was thirty percent at twenty eight days, so no statistically oh. significant difference. So, so in other words, what this what this means for us is that BDD glucan given for early initiation of antifungal therapy is not superior to a watch and culture approach. So, yeah, it's got a good negative predictive value, but what do you do with the result if it is positive? It's yes. it's not going to change your mortality,
0: right?
1: And Actually, in our setting, unfortunately, in a British scare, it takes us almost a week to get a B2D glucan. So I have almost no experience with doing b d glucans. I think we've done it on a couple of patients, because if you're going to wait for a week for your B2D glucan to come back, you've already made your decision on what you're going to do with the patient.
0: That's true.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. So just a caveat to remember about B2D glucan, we put a lot of emphasis on it, but maybe we shouldn't be.
0: So just a question that for your B2D-glucan group in this study, were they also ultimately culture positive at a later stage or were some of those culture negative?
1: Yeah. So some of them were culture positive. Others were not. Okay. I can't remember the exact percentages. (laughs) Um, It is in the candy sep trial at 2022.
0: Okay. We'll try and stick that in the show notes. Yeah so it's it's basically still not answering that age old question of what do we do with a culture negative suspected candidemias mm-hmm. if it's not really mm-hmm. offering that that answer. Yeah fascinating.
1: Yeah and then also another thing which I and, and sorry another s- system that I like to use is is called the Canada scoring system so um it's it's basically trying to identify those patients that are at risk of an invasive candidiasis and that comes with a strong recommendation, but a, a low quality of evidence. And there are the, the one that we use is, is, is basically looking at candida colonization on um, more than two sites, including two, in, including the two, um, patients that develop sepsis, patients on total parental nutrition, abdominal surgery. And if their score is three or more. Um, then they are at risk of developing the disease. So it's got a sensitivity of about 81%, which is pretty good, and a specificity of, of, of 74%. So essentially meaning it's got a pretty good negative predictive value, but a poor positive predictive value. And we do use the scoring system to, to try and identify which patients we should be treating. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit later. And other ways is, is looking at histopathology. We we sometimes get called by our uh, surgeon saying, "Oh, you know, the biopsy showed um, yeast noted on on this sample. What should we do about it?" And I'm I'm not sure I would base my treatment just on a histopathology report, but mm-hmm. for me, that helps me to say, "Well, okay, can we send that sample for culture? Are we going to see a candida coming through, etc." Mm-hmm. Now, uh, another thing is. Trying to diagnose the the candida or the candida deep seated infections, it's very important to do your um, to contact your radiology colleagues and do ultrasounds and CT scans, etc., and and echoes for looking for those collections uh, to see if you're able to to perk them. So yeah, that that would be that would be my approach to trying to um, diagnose these infections.
0: Yeah, that was great. It was really comprehensive, and I think you've pretty much covered all, all aspects of diagnostics there. So I think we've pretty much covered diagnostics. We've spoken about the challenges. We've spoken about the issues. So we can move on to then managing invasive candidiasis. Can you talk to us about the overarching principles of managing IC? Uh,
1: so th- thanks, Vin. Um, so essentially, you know, the principles for managing invasive candidiasis involve for me and I, I know for microbiologists and ID Physicians, we always say source control, source control, source control. It is the most important thing with regards to actually any infection, in my opinion. If there if there is a source, and um, if you if you want to listen to more about source control, you can listen to episode five, uh, source searching one hundred and one, and that will give you an idea of how to figure out where the source is. So, furthermore, it's for me. It would be to start the appropriate treatment as soon as possible and obviously the correct treatment based on where the disease is, etc. And then one of the other things is to monitor the treatment response, which can be both clinically and um, microbiologically. And then another very important aspect that people forget about is doing early de-escalation to the next appropriate antifungal medication, for example, going from an echinocandin down to um, fluconazole. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: yeah, that would be my approach.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that basically just includes the principles of antifungal stewardship, um, which apply to antifungals as much as they do to antibiotics. So yeah, that's a good kind of overview. And thanks for the episode plug as well. So in terms of antimicrobial options, what do we have available to treat invasive candidiasis?
1: Yeah, um, thanks. So there's three main options um in a South African context. Um overseas they do have a few more um, drugs, but we'll we'll go into them each separately. But essentially it's the of candons, such as casper fungin, mycofungin, and dulufungin, your azoles, thinking about fluconazole, voriconazole, etc., and then your deoxycolate amphotericin B, not your liposomal. Okay, we don't have access to liposomal, too expensive for us. And I'm Pretty sure it's too expensive for most pay, uh, most um, hospitals in South Africa. Anyway. Mm. So, so let's go into the the first one, which is your acaricandins. Kind of so, um, we like them; they've got a broad spectrum of activity. Um, rare to have resistance, but unfortunately, with Canada auris coming through, there is there is some resistance to to the auris to to, to, to sorry, there is resistance of Canada auris to the acaricandins. Kind of mm. It's a relatively safe drug; it's got few drug to drug interaction. But one of the important things that we commonly get asked about is is what about the penetration of your kindnocanons into uh, the CNSI and urine and, and that can be a problem and that's why you need to know where the source is and and trying to figure out what the infection uh, where the infection is coming from to to make that decision on on giving their kind or going down another route hmm. your your next workhorse drug are you going to be your azoles we have got so much experience with fluconazole in South Africa. We treat so much cryptococcal meningitis, and I think people are quite comfortable with using that drug. We do use fluconazole in our patients where they've got candidemias, but generally those are your very stable patients. Um, they're not critically ill. They haven't been exposed to azoles before. And, and the reason why we go with the azoles is a, a good proportion of our candidate species are are albicans. Mm. Uh, which, which are sensitive to fluconazole. So we do use that, but for example, if you're in a hospital where you're, you mainly see perhaps pelosis, glabrata um, or oris, you, you're not going to, you're not going to give a patient an azole e- even if they, even if they well. And the nice thing about the azoles is, as I said, it's the work, it's a workhorse drug and we, we've got a lot of experience, but it's also quite cheap in comparison to your kind of cannons. Mm. Your, your next big drug is going to be your Amphotericin B. Again, in South Africa, we've got tons of experience with this, with the cryptococcal meningitis. And I think people are quite... Nervous to give amphotericin B because we we do see a lot of toxicity um, in in the second week of treatment uh, with electrolytes and and um, dropping of your hemoglobin concentration, but it's actually still a really fantastic drug for um, your your candidias and uh, we do still use it um, from time to time for these patients and and then. Other drugs that we can use, but uh, we, we don't really use, is is flucytosine. Um, it's usually used in combination therapy with one of the other drugs above. Uh, they kind of can on and B, for example, your patients that have a CNS, uh, central nervous system infection with candida. I, I haven't had to use flucytosine for candidemias now, which um, I'm happy to say. Mm-hmm. And then there are some new drugs coming on the market, which I you we suspect we're not going to have for quite a while and they're probably going to be uh, exorbitant in price mm-hmm. is for example a new mm-hmm. kind of canon resafungan uh, which is quite nice because it can be given weekly and then fosomangopix. I
0: also oh can't gosh, say that one.
1: <laughs> so who apologise now to the pharmacologist?
0: Pharmacologists, yeah, yeah. drug developers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there we go there we go. Um, And that's basically an inhibitor of the fungal enzyme uh, GWT1. And that essentially affects the cell membrane and cell wall synthesis. And then Ibrexafungur, which is a... Uh, triterpenoid triterp- antifungal that inhibits glucan uh, synthet- uh, synthase. So so those three drugs, I, I suspect we're not going to be seeing I- I- anytime soon. But um, mm. it's always nice that there's new drugs coming on the horizon, especially with candida auris developing resistance to, to our echinocandins and hoping these drugs will be able to overcome them. So yeah.
0: Yeah. So in antifungals in general, actually, there's very limited options compared to Antibacterial agents. So it's great that there's some new options coming around.
1: Mm-hmm. And out of interest, Vin, how much um, Canada or resistance do you, do you see um, with, with regards to um, their kind of candidates?
0: Funny that you're asking, Terry. I actually just saw one on the blood culture bench yesterday morning. Oh, no. Yes. And we were looking at the E test, and I looked at it under a different light and turned the plates light. You know, trying to convince myself that it wasn't actually there. Um, So, yeah, we've just seen one. We've sent it off to the reference lab to see whether, you know, they can confirm that it is, in fact, resistant um, with broth microdilution. But generally, we haven't seen a lot of echinocanin resistance yet. Touch wood, it doesn't become, you know, uh, commonplace.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've got a wood desk in front of me, so I'm busy touching it with my hands and my toes.
0: Thank you. (laughs) So, so, Terry, what do you think are some of the factors you'd consider when deciding which of the antimicrobial options you're actually going to use as empiric therapy, preemptive therapy, directed therapy, etc.?
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks. So, so then I think a nice way to approach this is actually to approach it by the definitions point of view. So, I'm going to just chat a little bit about what is prophylaxis, what is preemptive, what is empiric, and what is directed. Therapy. Yeah, perfect. Just because I find like this, this always confused me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's important just for people to to come to grips uh, with these terms. Mm -hmm. So let's start with prophylaxis first. So um, prophylaxis means giving an antifungal therapy, to prevent the development of a fungal disease, and we do do that at at Crutuscare. And the indications for doing this is patients that have acute leukemia that are going intensive um, induction or reinduction, and uh, patients that have got that are undergoing autologous or allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplants up and until en- engraftment. Um, so our hematologists do give fluconazole prophylaxis now. The next one is is controversial and I do not recommend doing this and that's looking at patients that are critically ill that are not neutropenic mm-hmm. some studies show that there is a benefit in reducing uh, mortality in those patients but giving prophylaxis to critically ill non-neutropenic patients if you read the newest guidelines it is not recommended it's just going to drive resistance and drive your non-abacans um resistant species um, to, to develop in those patients. Yeah. So, so that's prophylaxis in a, in a nutshell. The next term is preemptive treatment. Now, that is, for example, giving antifungal therapy to patients that are at risk of candidemia with a positive fungal biomarker, biomarker, such as what we've just discussed, your, your B2D glucan. But once again, it's recommended um, and and we've just discussed the Candicep trial with regards to the b two d glucan not being that useful with regards to decreasing your mortality. And furthermore, you know you're driving your costs, you're driving resistance. Um, so we have to be we have to be clever about the way we're using our um, antifungal agents. <clears throat> so that's preemptive. Then there's empirical therapy. Now, that is giving an antifungal to a patient that has, has symptoms and signs of an infection with specific risk factors for invasive candidiasis, irrespective of their biomarkers. Okay, so let's unpack this. So who who is this? Which patient population? So it's your non neutropenic critically ill patients with multi-organ failure, who are also in septic shock and have two or more extra intestinal colonization sites with the candida species. Despite broad spectrum antibiotics, they are still sick. This is the patient you would consider giving empiric antifungal cover, and you would probably be going with an echinocandid. Now, if you do opt for this, you should obviously do your cultures, etc. And if the patient improves on your echinocannon, kind of then you can treat them for two weeks. But if after about four days, they're not improving, you've probably got the wrong diagnosis and it's not a candidemia. And then you should reconsider your empiric therapy for, for, for these patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the one 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 patient population. The other one is those patients with complicated intra-abdominal infections who have risk factors for, for candidemia, as we've already mentioned earlier but who have also got perforations or leakage and no other causes identified uh, for their fever. Now, I'm not sure I completely agree with that. In a lot of, in, in, in some of the cases that we see at care what we do is we, we investigate further. We do the CT scans. We ask our interventional radiologists to get involved. We we try and get tissue before before starting these patients on, on antifungals empirically. And especially if the patient is stable, uh, I'm not sure I'd rush in and, and give antifungal to these patients and then the next patient category is your neutropenic hematology oncology oncologic patients where they have persistent fever despite your broad spectrum antibiotics but in saying that as I said we're quite lucky we, we're quite involved with our hematology colleagues over in here and And we don't give antifungal therapy very easily. The patients we really go searching for other causes. So, you you know, we live in South Africa. We see a lot of TB. So we look for the TB. We we go and look for other viral infections. You know, COVID can cause fever, etc., etc. And we look for the Hopi stomatitis when these patients get mucositis. We look for graft host -host disease. We look for fever uh, as part of engraftment. So you know, you can't just say, oh, patient is neutropenic, not responding to broad-spectrum antibiotics equals giving antifungals. I think you need to do a bit of uh, investigations before going down that role. However, if your patient is exceptionally ill, critically ill, in other words, septic mm. shock, et cetera, I would not hold back on giving that patient the, the antifungal if they if they have not already responded to, to those broad-spectrum antibiotics. Mm. So, so that's empiric treatment. And then Targeted or, or directed therapy is, is a lot easier. This this is where um, it's easier for clinicians to 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 know what to do. And that, that essentially means you treat a patient based on microbiological confirmation. So your microbiologist calls you and says, Hi guys, patient X has a positive blood culture, there's a yeast scene, uh patient has risk factors for candidemia. This is the patient that I would not hesitate to to start antifungal therapy on. So yeah, that's my approach.
0: Very, very nicely um, explained, Terry. Thank you so much. So I think maybe based on everything that you just explained now, it'll be nice for us to go through a couple of uh, short case scenarios and discuss how how we'd manage the patients. So let's take the first one. If Ampho b or any kind of Candon was started as empiric therapy and the cultured isolate turns out to be susceptible to fluconazole, when can one safely de-escalate
1: therapy? Okay, yeah, fantastic question. We get this all the time. So you have to, you can de-escalate from your amphibia or kynocandin to fluconazole if your patient is clinically better. It must be a susceptible organism, which you've just told us, Mm -hmm. and source control must be achieved. So in other words, if there's an abscess, you've perked it. Mm. If there's a, a central line inside, you've removed it. And then also another thing is, If the repeat blood culture is negative, i.e. the one at 48 hours after starting treatment is negative, then you gain can de-escalate. Now, that's what the guidelines propose, and and Vin, I'm not sure what what you guys are doing on, on, on your side, but... You know, due to the economic problems we're having, we are, if the patient is getting better, susceptible organisms, sources, controls achieved, we're we, we de-escalating earlier than the five to seven days um, recommended by guidelines to to fluconazole. And and that's because the patients are doing better and echinocannons are expensive. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure, what are you doing on your side?
0: So there's very limited use of echinocannons just because we see so much of candida auras, we're having to actually also, as you say, limit the number of days that they're allowed access to. So it's generally given for three days, unless you can prove that it is a candida auris. If it is not a candida auris and it is susceptible to amphobie, then we ask for, well, it isn't de-escalation. It's just switching over from the echinocandin to the amphobie. And that's usually our practice
1: here. Yeah, we did the same. Yeah, that makes sense. Good to know.
0: Yeah, good to know we're on the same page. <laughs> And then, Terry, what is the recommended duration of therapy? This is always a buzz. How how, how long is long enough um, when it comes to invasive candidiasis? Uh,
1: I always tell my, my colleagues that work shorter is better, and, and it's such a great term that, yeah. that everyone talks about in, in the ID, microbiology community. So so candidemias, traditionally, okay, mm-hmm. you start a treatment, you wait for your 48-hour blood culture to be done, and if that is negative at 48 hours, then you start that as day one and add 14 days to that. Okay. So in other words, some patients might be on treatment for uh, between 14 and 16 days, in other words. Mm. However, in saying that, there's a recent study, uh, I think it was by Vinner et al. And granted, it's it's a retrospective study. It's small numbers. They are questioning whether we need to give these fourteen days um, for patients that have uncomplicated candidemia. So, in other words, no metastatic disease, forty-eight hour blood culture is negative. They haven't got other bacteria, other organisms, or bacteria growing on their on their isolates. Mm-hmm. And they they said that maybe um, they had two groups. They had patients that were treated for five to eleven days with antifungals and others that were, <clears throat> were treated for 12 to four, 12 to 24 days and they showed that the 90 mortality 90 day mortality was the same um, in both groups but but as i said this is this is a retrospective study in in other words we really need to do more studies yeah on on candidemias and to understand like what is the optimal duration of therapy is 14 days actually what we need <laughs> that is the big question <laughs>
0: Yeah. And it'd be nice to see some prospective randomized control trials looking at shorter therapy. Um, because it is locked. These patients already are at risk for so much. Keeping them in hospital for 14 days actually just, you know, opens up a whole lot of other potential problems and adverse events associated with hospitalization. Um, so seeing as we're talking shorter is better, I'm going to put another plug to a Microbe episode. Episode 22 is Goldilocks and the course of antibiotics where we go through all things shorter is better. Terry, I think you just covered candidemia there, right? Uh, were you still going to talk about um, duration of therapy for others?
1: Yes. So, you know, this is another thing we commonly get asked about is what about your complicated intra-abdominal infections where, where there's a concern that it's a candida. So, this is a rather difficult one to tell you how long to treat patients for. But for example, let's say a patient has a deep seated collection, which has got candida and has got a secondary bacteremia. I would treat that patient for at least 14 days after the first negative culture. There's a caveat to that, and that is that you need to do repeat imaging to make sure that that abscess, that intra-abdominal abscess, is now um, completely resolved and, and that you've got good source control because... If you haven't and you've got a drain inside and it's still pouring, uh, high volumes of pus coming out, I would be a bit nervous to stop um, antifungal treatment um, in that patient at that time. So you, you might need to extend duration of, of therapy. But but as we've said before, source control is probably your best option, especially with these complicated intra-abdominal infections.
0: Right. Yeah. I agree with you. I'd be very nervous to stop as well. And in which anatomical sites would you recommend to be screened to look for sources? Because we're talking about source control, source control, but you've got to look. and So where would you look for, for deep-seated sources?
1: Yeah, 100%. So it, it all depends on your clinical circumstances and, and the resources available to you. You know, like if you worried about a patient with infective endocarditis, you, you've you got to go and do the echo on that patient. For example, I, I recently um, saw a patient that was an IV drug user that had... Community acquired candidemia, and we were all scratching our heads um, and thinking, "Where is this coming from?" And mm. because he was an IV drug user, we went and did an echo on him. And and luckily for this gentleman, his echo was was normal, so there was no uh, vegetations. But you you know you you got to say to yourself, "Where's the source?" Mm. And and luckily like for him, his his echo was was normal. And then w- once again, I keep mentioning our surgical patients. But if you if the surgeons call you and say uh, we got a candidemia uh, on a blood culture. You go there, you see the patient. that's an abdominal surgical pla- pa- patient. You're going to say, "Well, where's the CT scan? What does that show?" Right. And and then you know the I leave this one to last. It's the it's the controversial one where I think infectious diseases and uh, ophthalmologists. Uh, disagree with, but mm-hmm. um, uh, there seems to be some consensus now. So so candida ophthalmitis can occur in between five and 15% of patients that have a, uh, a candidemia. And if you read the Infectious Diseases Society Guidelines of America, they they suggest that all patients uh, with a candidemia should be assessed for candida ophthalmitis. But the American Academy of, Academy of Ophthalmology recommend that patients that have symptoms should, should be screened for, for ophthalmitis. And in, in saying that, you know, I think most clinicians should be able to take their ophthalmoscope and look in the back of the eye of the patient and, and see if they have any signs of candida endophthalmitis or or, or candida uh, retinitis, And if that is the case, you need to get the ophthalmologist involved. Mm. And you know the, the other thing to to consider is if you haven't done your ophthalmo, ophthalmoscopy and your forty eight hour blood culture is, is still positive for for Canada, I I really would start. And you can't find the source, I would go look in the eyes of the patient um, to see if that's a source. Um, and then obviously, like I said, you need to get your your ophthalmologists in, involved in these cases. Um, so essentially, what I'm saying is, if you can look yourself. Um, and if the patient does have symptoms, then you really should get uh, proper screening done for for these patients.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to approach that one, I think. And then still on kind of management, besides using antifungals, what are the other interventions that need to be implemented to efficiently manage invasive candidiasis once the source has already been identified?
1: So um, as we've already said, you know, remove your central venous catheter. Go and insert a percutaneous drain in, in in a patient that's got an intraabdominal abscess, or, or take them to theatre. Mm. Um, and also another patient that I had a couple of years ago had a had a fungus ball um, in her mm. kidney, and unfortunately she wasn't a surgical candidate, but uh, she unfortunately demised from a fungemia from a candidemia and had a fungus ball, and you know we just couldn't we couldn't operate on her. And uh, what I'm saying is, if you do have that, you, you really need to get your urologist involved as well. Mm. And prosthetic joint infections, uh, go speak to your orthopods, say, guys, you know, uh, can we remove this? Can we do a one-stage, two-stage procedure, whatever it is? And then infective endocarditis is a real, real difficulty. Those patients really need to be discussed with uh, cardiothoracics um, Mm. to to see if they're willing to to do valve replacement on them. And another important thing, which um, I think we do forget about, is your bundles of care. So, you know, your, your CLABSIs, your central line associated bloodstream infection uh, bundles, your Caltese catheter associated UTI, uh, urinary tract infection uh, bundles of care, and, and also peripheral line associated bloodstream infection, CLABSI uh, bundles of care um, to try and um, ensure that patients don't develop these infections. And then also importantly is doing good antifungal stewardship um, mm-hmm. in in your hospitals and if you don't have them in your hospital then asking your uh, microbiologist or your infectious disease specialist to to come to your hospital and do outreach and um, assist in trying to teach people about antimicrobial as well as antifungal stewardship programs mm. so yeah
0: yeah i think that's pretty much all encompassing thanks terry now, I'm going to bring this home a little bit. <laughs> when should infectious diseases be consulted for invasive candidiasis?
1: So this is the easiest question you've asked me the whole time. <laughs> so so we, we've got a, a great relationship with our, our microbiologists and every patient that has a candidemia um, is referred to us. And uh, we do unsolicited consults. And I must say, generally, you know, I, people don't like it when you come put your nose in someone else's patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but I must say the, the the clinicians that look after these patients actually really do appreciate when we come by and say, hey, guys, um, this patient's got a candidemia. Maybe you should do X, Y, Z. Um, because in actual fact, it's, it's not something we see that often or people don't see that often. So. It's, it's important that people that um, have this knowledge basis are, are are involved in these cases. And it doesn't need to be your, your infectious disease specialist. It, it, your microbiologists are, are perfect for, for handling these type of patients as well.
0: Yeah, so it could be ID, it could be microbiology, whoever you've got access to. that, And, and there are some uh, specialists, pediatricians, uh, intensive care physicians, etc., with also with um, great interest in infectious diseases, who are pretty much experts in managing these as well. So, as you say, I mean, we've got we've got so few ID specialists um, in South Africa that anyone who is regarded as an expert or someone with interest can manage these. And and there's there's been published evidence that patients who are seen by ID for candidemia have better outcomes than those who haven't. Am I right?
1: Uh, Yeah, as far as I know. uh, And and it's the same for those patients that have staph aureus. We Mm. do the same. Every patient that's got a staph aureus bacteremia is ID and microbiology are involved. Absolutely. Um, Better outcomes.
0: Definitely. Uh, Terry, can you tell us about some of the complications of invasive candidiasis, which can occur if the patient has been inappropriately managed?
1: So that's why it's so important to be to, to start treatment early, get involved, et cetera. And, and, and it's to prevent patients from developing uh, complications of this candidemia. I mean, getting candida on your valves is not a good thing and mm-hmm. going into your eye, going into your bone, um, you know, it just essentially where it goes to these deep seated areas. Um, it's not not something you want because your treatment is just going to be prolonged. Your duration of stay in hospital, et cetera, et cetera, is going to be um, affected.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Terry, you've given us some really, really useful tips and information, and you've spoken about so many different uh, concepts and principles. Can you refer our listeners, before I ask you for your take-home message, can you refer our listeners to some useful guidelines or some useful papers for management of invasive candidiasis?
1: So I'm going to start off with the first article, um, which is the, the Infectious Disease Society of America's guideline by Papas et al. in in, in 2016. Um, it's a really nice article. It gives you a nice uh, overview of what to do. Um, it is getting a little bit old, um, mm. but the principles haven't really changed. So I, I would definitely start off with reading that article. Another article I, I, I really enjoyed was by Martin Lochless. Um, it's the Eskim ESCM and ESCMID Task Force Practical Management of Invasive And in the ISIS, um, and that was in 2019. Um, And another nice paper, which was more recent, was a paper by uh, Soriano in Journal of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy in in 2023. And Um, and that goes into um, some of the new stuff that's uh, coming out in in the world of candidemias. Mm. So yeah,
0: those are really really great references. Thank you so much. And then lastly, Terry, a quick take-home message for our listeners.
1: No, no points for those people that are going to guess it, but um, source control. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most important thing. And then close follow up, monitor these patients. They they can be quite sick, and make sure you do those blood cultures, uh, those repeat blood cultures. I can't stress that enough. It really makes a difference to your treatment duration for patients. You've got to do that blood uh, blood culture at your forty eight hour mark. And and if you don't have a microbiologist or an infectious disease specialist or a ICU person or a person with interest in, in in infectious diseases, just call call someone. in in microbiology and ID um, for this advice uh, on how to handle these, these patients um, because they, they can, they can be, um, they can be difficult. And, and in actual fact, there is quite a high mortality from candidemias. So you don't want to mess around.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, that was absolutely fantastic, Terry. Now, before I close off, I have to tell you how lucky you are because normally we have a spotlight feature on our episodes and, I would have actually cornered you and made you play a game with me, but um, I wasn't all that prepared <laughs> today. So you get, you're getting off lightly this time around, but next time I won't be so kind.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, fantastic. I look forward to the game next time. You must just prep me beforehand. <laughs>
0: Okay, great. Terry, that was absolutely incredible. And it was really, really comprehensive. Uh, So listeners, if you're out there studying for any kind of registrar exams, college exams, et et cetera, this would be an absolutely fantastic study resource. So if you've got friends, colleagues, um, students, anyone who you think you could share this with, uh, please go ahead and do that. Terry, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. It was awesome having you as a guest and I hope we'll see you again soon.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. It's been really a lot of fun, and and thank you for um, all the guests for um, listening and, and and joining us um, on this uh, interesting interesting topic.
0: Fantastic. We always love receiving your feedback, questions, and comments on our episodes, so please help share this, as I said, with colleagues, um, other teams, and students. And one last reminder for that five-star rating. Also, please help us reach more listeners in other low- and middle-income countries by sharing with anyone who you think might be interested in this content. So, until next time, that's it from me, Vin, your micro Messenger, and the rest of the micro Mail team. We'll see you again soon with more Contagious Mail.